You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. This podcast is brought to you by The Province. The Province Sports Podcast. Welcome to the Province Sports and Vancouver Sun Sports, I suppose, Ed. Uh, White Towel Podcast. I'm Paul Chapman, joined by Ed Willis. Let's talk some Canucks, shall we, Ed? Well, the, yeah, not a bad idea in this yeah. market. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. You don't want to get into break down the BC Lions <laughs> acquisitions in the Mexican draft? <laughs> I, I thought they really missed with their second round. I thought they really reached for that guy. But we'll see how it works out. Yeah. I just can't wait for the Peru rounds of the CFL uh, <laughs> draft. But I digress. Ed, um, to me, the Canucks have just been a fascinating story all year, whether it's been – the, the emergence of Elias Pettersson to these wild streaks they go on either way better than people thought, collapsing into they can't win. Pettersson gets hurt. They get shut out too. But overall, I look at where the team is now and now everyone's talking playoffs. Is this realistic? Is it fair? Is it accurate? Well, yeah, it, it, I think it's the, the thing is like it's been so long since we've actually seen a playoff race. In this city, I, I'm not sure if we'd recognize one if it like landed on us. So, it, 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 but I, I think you just look at the numbers; like they're two points behind the eighth place team in the wild card. So, sure, yeah, is it realistic? I don't think so. I still don't see this team as a playoff team. But certainly, stranger things have happened. And I think the one thing that you can legitimately hold out hope for is when Elias Patterson gets back in the lineup, they're going to have their full complement of forwards for the first time all season. So that's with Brandon Sutter with Josh Levo and uh, with Sven and, and with Sven Berici. Yeah. So all of a sudden now you can see a you know a lineup with you know four decent lines. You know the one big scoring line based around Patterson and Besser. What should be a decent second line with, with with Horvat and whoever they decide to play with them and and that now there's still issues on the blue line and we still don't know what Jacob Markstrom is. But I think you can look at that and and. As we've been saying all along, I'm just not sure if it's really that important that this team makes the playoffs. But as long as they're playing meaningful games in mid to late March, I think that will keep this fan base uh, engaged. Well, that's been the debate as well about the value of, you know, and I almost hate the phrase tanking. Um, and we've been, I, and I, I do hate talking about it because we've been talking about it for three years. Yeah. Oh, they should lose for a great draft <laughs> pick, et cetera, et cetera. But 
at some point with these younger players, as you as you hear from the team, like Travis Green wants to win games yeah. because he thinks that the team needs to play those meaningful games. Well, and and I think that's why Alex Adler and Chris Tan ever are such an you know interesting uh, conversation point. The closer they get to the trade deadline, so I mean, do you you know do you like Alex Adler the way he's playing right now? There's going to be a significant market for him. I'm not exactly sure what that'll be, but something along the lines of a you know a late first round draft pick, and I think a B plus pro- prospect is not out of the question. The other thing, he is so by far their best defenseman. So if you're sitting there in a position where, you know, you would think, well, you were probably, you know, even if we do make the playoffs, we're going out in the first round anyways. But this market is just so starved for some positive news and some, some, some idea that, you know, the plan is working, that it is pointed in the right direction. And, and boy, they're going to have to be awfully careful the way they handle that. I'm just not sure. If that kind of return justifies moving Edler, it's it, it's a really interesting situation for me. If you look at if you look at the West, um, I mean, and certainly we've seen it with I know Arizona won, Edmonton's coming in, they're not good either. There's an awful lot of dysfunction at the bottom. Yeah, uh, certainly a team like LA knew early on that they were not going to be in it this year, and they got all sorts of issues all over the place, and they've just kind of written off the season. Fair enough, I get that. Um, but when you look at this muddle of teams sort of above or below the real contenders and above that one or two like dreadful teams at the bottom, it's a real mix, isn't it, in there in this conference? Oh, yeah. It's, you know, it's a dog's breakfast in there. It's everybody from, you know, like, you know, the Oilers with Connie McDavid and like Dallas, which just seems to be a daily soap opera now. It's fantastic. <laughs> it really is. Uh, you know, Colorado was expected to take, an, uh, you know, the next step up and they've kind of regressed. No, like there's kind of those aristocratic teams up at the top, Winnipeg, uh, Nashville. And you would have thought Calgary. Yeah, and Cal- yeah, really, Calgary, flawed, but I'm mean, hard to argue with their record and then everybody else just it just seems to be like a complete model i guess vegas seems to coming se- on yes yeah they, they've separated They're, they've yeah. risen from the morass there but uh yeah every there's like six eight teams that you could throw a blanket around and you go oh geez it really is a question of you know are they going to get like superior goaltending is the power play going to click? Is that one guy going to make a San difference? San Jose, another team that way, bringing Carlson to yeah. put him over the top. It just really hasn't happened for them yet, but you can see it, it's, it's still happening, happening now. It's yeah. happening now. Yeah. I think. I think they're I actually. I think they're scaring the crap out of a lot of teams. Well, that's it in, in the West and in the, in the NHL because yeah, yeah, no, they, they belong in that conversation yeah. with the elite teams in the West. So where does that really leave the Canucks? And when you when you're looking at, I remember doing this podcast with you <laughs> two three years ago when we would say, oh, you look, I think actually if we, you can rewind all the way back to when they lost Calgary in the playoffs. Yeah. And you said, oh, this team was better than we thought, but can they really compete with, look at Johnny Goudreau and Sean Monaghan, yeah. all these great young players. And of course, Edmonton has Connor McDavid. And we know what beasts that the Blackhawks and the Kings were in evolution that we didn't see over the last three, four years. But how, we all know that the, the issues are with the Canucks blue line and goaltending. But how do you think they are positioned as you try and project two, three years ahead? And I know that's a really yeah. tricky question. Well, I think for the first time, the, the the bigger picture is starting to come into focus. I think we're starting to see about what they have and about what they will be. And Pedersen has changed this conversation completely. Like to land that franchise who appears to be that franchise-changing centerman, offensive player, driving force, that just changes everything. It allows them to slot players in behind him. 
Uh, if Quinn Hughes is, I, I wouldn't say that level of player because the blue line's a different animal. But yeah. if he, but if he's an impact defenseman, if he's a legitimate, uh, boy, there's not that any many legitimate number one. But if he's a legitimate top pairing guy, if he's like a a fifty point blue liner who can like drive a power play, that's another vital piece. So I think they just kind of have to let let this thing play out. Um, I. I, I uh, the other positive sign for me is I, I, I think Travis Green is an excellent coach. He seems I, – I, I don't think any person could realistically expect anything more than he's gotten out of this team. The younger players seem to be improving. There's kind of a larger philo- philosophy in place there, playing with speed, uh, playing the modern NHL game. So I don't think he'll be a detriment in this process. Here. So it's just kind of it, – it's almost like you've got to let it marinate and then see where we are. And I've been saying all along, the clock really doesn't start talking, ticking on this team till January 1st, 2020. Uh, and, and I, I'll stick to that. So Ed, l- allow me to paraphrase what you're saying is <laughs> Travis Green knows more than the myriad of experts on Twitter and sports radio who think that Nikolai Goldobin is being mistreated? Well, you know, it, 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 it's, I think, I think Travis has finally worn those people down. <laughs> I, I think, like it was such, you know, it was such a great storyline in like November, like when Goldobin did get in the lineup and, you know, he'd be, he would be very productive over a course of six, seven games. And then, you know, one bad shift and he'd be benched or he'd be a healthy scratch or things like that. But I think people see. Uh, him, he's talented player, sure, no question about that. There's a lot of talented players in the NHL. And the thing with Green is trying to do, it's not like make a below average team slightly better. It's can we win with these guys going forward? Are these, are these players you can legitimately build a competitive team around? And if I would submit if Nikolai Goldobin is in your top six, you're not that team. Yeah, and that's, you know, you, just even on a on a you know a friendly sports level we've talked about this over many years would you rather have a team that's kind of makes the playoffs every year but is not championship caliber or a team that can just you know sacrifice it all to build the right way and get there and actually get over the line and i think obviously 2011 was a special time for Canuck fans and and in contrast to their other runs it was a team that was expected to do well that was front running all the way along and that's really the only era of of time in the Canucks history where they could do that now you see them trying to build that again. And I don't want to continue to blame ownership, but we saw it with the Trevor Linden situation. This has always been the fear about the ownership group is that they wanted playoff revenue, that that was just more important than actually winning a championship. But this, it does feel different. Whether luck played into it a little bit for me with Pedersen being as good as he was uh, with the fifth pick, you know, if they'd got if they'd got one of these top guys like Austin Matthews in the lottery, mm-hmm. you might mm-hmm. go, oh, okay, yeah, here's your expectation. But now it does seem to me like the pieces are falling into place. Yeah, and, and, and I think so. And, you know, having said all that, when we're talking about things that could go south, the wild card in this thing is ownership. Yeah. If they're sitting there and, like, the Canucks again are, like, within a couple of points of that playoff spot, what are they going to do? How are they going to react? Are they going to chase that thing? Are they going to, you know, make a play that's kind of doesn't really fit in with the plan just to see if they can get in the playoffs? Don't well, know. Don't know. But it's the, the very fact that we're asking that question now and, and, and you don't know to me says so much. Well, and was this not the conversation just last offseason? The Canucks are seriously kicking the tires on Carlson. Yeah. 
you know, we've PK Subban, the lust for this team to bring in a superstar, which at <laughs> this right, point yeah. in their development, does that fit? Well, no, and it, 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 I, I don't think at this trade deadline, but but this offseason is setting up to be really interesting because there are some very attractive UFAs out there that you can see the Canucks going, look, we've got this hot young sentiment, you know, we've got a spot on him. If you come to Vancouver, this is who you get to play with, Mark Stone or Wayne Simmons or whoever it happens to be. Um, that will be, again, a really interesting one. Um, and maybe it's time for that, but there's kind of the cautionary tale of Louis Erickson. <laughs> <laughs> and well, and you have over for everyone. So yeah, hard to believe they, they dodged what, a Paul, bullet Paul, that he was Paul, the second this choice is the to most Interesting one game under five hundred <laughs> team in the history of hockey. But that's what I mean, their friend. Uh, yeah. yeah, again, I I joke, you know, but it, uh, supposedly Lucic was their number one. Uh, oh, he was. Target, so, uh, they turned him down, was, so they yeah, turned yeah, Erickson, yeah. and look how well he's turned <laughs> out in Edmonton. So yeah, you wonder about that with this off season, but I I do, I I I understand the native of. The, just the, the, at the heart of every Canuck fan, how they want another top five pick. They think, no, we need a couple more. And yeah. the, there's so much hope in the draft. There always is. But when I look at this team still and how streaky they are, and you look at Vertanen, who certainly has had his longest stretches of good play, but then has also disappeared. Bo Horvat, mm-hmm. you know, a month ago we were talking about how Horvat was this unreported great story. And now he's really, has plateaued a little bit. Yeah. And he's not, a, he's still a kid, but he's had a few seasons in the NHL. This is what it's about being competitive, isn't it? And having games that matter in March because these guys need to develop. Yeah, okay, good. But but I honestly think the way they're structured now, those kind of stories aren't as impactful as they were at the start of the year. I think the role, when they get everybody in the role, they have a Jake Vertanen, third line right winger on a line with Brandon Sutter. I think that is a perfect role for him. And some nights when he's really going, he can play up in the lineup and maybe you give him a little power play time. But unfortunately, I think that's what Jake Vertanen is. He's 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 a top nine forward who might fit into your top six on a couple of nights a year. I think the issue with Horvat, it's more incumbent on the organization to find players he can play with, rather than for Bo to carry a second scoring line all by himself. And again, that's why I'm really curious to say he's had a bit of chemistry with Berchi uh, over the years. So I, I really would like to see this group of forwards have a 10, 15 game run just to see what it, what they can do. And what do you think they can do? What do you think the top I, end I, is for this team the rest of the season? I, I think they can be a team who can hang around the playoff conversation and then maybe they, maybe they get lucky in a couple of places. Maybe Markstrom goes on a run and that pushes them over the top. I don't see it. I, I, I don't think they're that good. But I think if they can at least continue on that path, that's more important to the organization. And you you talked about Edler and Tanev, and obviously Good Branson is such a lightning rod for criticism in this market. Um, how much change do you think we see in this blue line going forward? Well, I think uh, in significant terms of, or like a two three in pieces. In terms of next year, well, yeah, I think Quinn Hughes is on the team next year. I don't th- I don't think there's any question about that. Um, I for for me again, you, you got to bring Edler and Tanev back. Um, I, I know it's crazy, but I mean, can you imagine this scenario, Paul? Imagine, if you will, think along with me here, is if they make these deals and, and they lose Adler and they lose Tanev, they could go into next season with Quinn Hughes as their best defenseman. 
What the hell is that going to do? That like that is a recipe for disaster, a recipe for the for the kid, for the team, for everybody. Like this is the one thing you know. All those years that you know, Benning was in, and and Lyndon were talking about. You know, yeah, we want a competitive environment. You know, and they were putting out Michael Shapu and all these guys. Well, they finally have most of those types of players in place now that can insulate the youngers, the young, younger players that you know, can show them the way to be developed. And I think to like deviate from that course now would be a massive mistake. I'm glad you put it much more eloquently than I could because I've been scratching my head at the litany of trade rumors and also social media wisdom, as I reference again, yeah. that um, they have no defense, that uh, Tanev, Hutton's playing much better, and Edler are their best three defensemen, and all three of them should be moved out for other pieces. <laughs> and I keep saying, if everyone is like criticizing this blue line, why do you want to move out the only capable players well, you have? That, that's just it. Of course, and the other part to this is like, like Toronto was sitting there with this oh, big yeah. glowing neon sign over it. We're desperate for defensemen. So, and, and we're still six weeks from the trade deadline. I mean, coming out of the World Junior, that's when it started. Trade Alex Edler, don't trade it. What's the market for him? It was seven weeks away for pity's sake. And we're talking about that. So that's going to like, that's going to get hammered to death. Like I'm already tired of it. It's interesting to a point, but, but seriously. It is. And I think that that's, that is a key question for Canuck fans though, is like, what does the team do at the deadline? Are they, yeah. Are you kind of set on what you have and you're going to be patient, but your ears are open to bigger offers or are you going to be aggressive? And what, if you are being aggressive, what's your plan? What do you want back? What are you willing to give up? Right? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I again, Jim Benning is kind of a conservative old school hockey guy. I don't see him swinging for the fences. I think he understands where this team is now, what the revolution is. Um, in terms of the assets, you might get back for Edlin. Again, I kind of I go back and forth in this. You know, people talk about, oh, you know, Tanking, like the Canucks did a masterful tanking job for three years. They couldn't have written the script any better where they finished 28th, 29th, and 26th in consecutive years. They just didn't get lucky with the ping pong balls. Okay, they got lucky with Patterson, and yep. maybe that was the hockey god's way of, you know, evening up, evening up the tally sheet. But I, I, I just, the, the way it's structured now, you're not really guaranteed a whole lot of anything. And I, like I've made this joke before, but it would just be the ultimate Canucks thing. They missed the playoffs on the last day of the season. And this is the day they win the lot. And this is yeah. the year they win the lottery. So if we, the other question and we have, you know, we're going to see uh, a decent audition here for Thatcher Demko. That's another good story, isn't it? When you, no. we'll get into the world juniors when we finish because you covered it fairly extensively, but Di Pietro, still a long way away. Mm -hmm. We know it takes goalies a little bit longer. But when you actually have uh, so many prospects in the organization that you can identify and kind of keep an eye of, you know, Demko's here now. He's going to get a chance to audition, most likely be here full time next year. Um, thoughts on him so far? Yeah, well, I, I saw him. I'm really glad uh, I got to cover that Marley's uh, Comets playoff series last year because I saw him over five games against clearly the best team in the AHL. And, and you, you, you can see he's got the raw tools. So now he, it's just, it, it's, I think he's got to process the game. This is based on seeing him in one NHL start, mind you. I think he's got to learn to process the game a little faster. To, uh, 
things coming at him at NHL speed in that one start seemed to give him a bit of a problem. But he's got all the tools. He's got the perfect goalie's body. He seems to have that. Uh, he seems to have a really good temperament about himself uh, uh, too. He's he's competitive. Um, all the things. So he's got a chance which is, I, I yeah. think, about all you can say. Uh, interesting, Jacob Markstrom, he's very similar in terms of, like, where they were drafted. I, 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 Markstrom was either the last pick of the first round or the first pick of the second round, I can't remember. Similar spot to Demko, same size, everything, great prospect. Look how long it's taken him yeah. to figure out. We don't know if he's figured it out yet. I, I think we can start giving him a little more of the benefit of the doubt. But, uh, yeah, Demko is uh, It's going to be, an, and, I, and I think it's, it's a good situation for him here. So let's talk about the World Juniors a little bit. Um, obviously, beyond Di Pietro, not much on the Canadian team, yeah. which I guess is a good thing considering how the tournament came out. Uh, you saw some of the Americans, obviously even, you know, prospects on, on Finland that, that, uh, that people were excited about. It was kind of an underwhelming tournament here. Uh, I think even when Canada was in it, people weren't yeah. as, as, as yeah. in tune with this tournament as they were when it was first here a few years ago, but it's still nice to be able to see those prospects, isn't it? No, a hundred percent. And I'm really, so I was in Victoria for the whole thing yeah. and I'm glad because I was removed away from the see everything through the Canadian filter. And I think I got to take, got to get a little more global view of that pool and, you know, see the teams and the players maybe a little more clear eyed than I would have been. It would have been chasing whatever Canadian story would have been the day here. So I, I, there was some fascinating. Uh, storylines for me as, you know, Sweden try, you know, they had the super team last year. They lose to Canada trying to bounce back and it looks like they're there and then they get ravaged by the flu. <laughs> the crazy thing is I kept wanting to write how disappointing the Finns were in the round robin. They get beat by the States. They got clobbered by the Swedes. Um, I'm sorry. They got clobbered by the States and, and the Swedes beat them quite easily. It was two one game, but they that would that flattered the Finns to an illogical set. And then all of a sudden they get in the playoff round. They win that one game. They got an easy draw because Switzerland beat this flu ravaged Sweden team, and they're the ones skating around with the uh, the gold medal. It was a terrific gold medal game too. Yeah. It was absolutely a brilliant game. So uh, the states look to me to have six, eight impact NHL players in their lineup. Uh, and, and I think uh, Sweden had an incredible blue line. There's a kid named Eric Brandstrom. <clears throat> Vegas's first round draft pick from two years ago, I want to say, who really interesting because he's uh, he, sort of a Quinn Hughes type, smaller, very mobile. It's going to be interesting to track those two players' development. Obviously, people were very excited about Quinn Hughes, and there's a lot of chatter about his brother and you wrote a, 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 a very good column on the U.S. development team program. Yeah. Is that where do you think this game is going to be internationally in ten years? I mean, honestly, Finland are far from the Iceland in, in soccer <laughs> model. <laughs> you know, Finland yeah, has yeah. a pretty good pedigree, but they've won a few of these World Juniors. Now the States looks to they are right on the edge of really becoming a powerhouse in hockey. Uh, Sweden always competitive. And I do think it's a good story how teams like Switzerland, however they get there, they're making more noise. 10 years ago, Switzerland was a 10-1 game. Yeah. Um, is Canada in trouble here? Well, I, I think they, I think they really have to do a lot of soul searching here. And I, mean, I remember writing this that, you know, do they have to have a look at that U.S. development team model? Uh, it's, I, I, I and, and, and it's, there's so many moving parts in, in this discussion. And maybe the biggest one is is, is the amount uh, of power the Canadian Hockey League teams still hold 
in this conversation, and I, they would lose their minds if they were forced to cough up the 24 best 16-year-old players and the 24 best 17-year-old players to some kind of national development program. But I, God, the proof's kind of in the pudding in the yeah. states since they've got you know they 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 started it in the mid 90s and it took a while for it to catch, but sometime around 2010. They've just been spitting out these elite blue chip prospects and the state's record. I'm trying, I'm drawing a blank now, but this blew my mind is how many times the states have won the U18s with that, you know, development program in, in the last 10 years. It's like I said, it, it's uh, the very minimum. Canada needs to have that conversation and have a long, hard look. And really, the American model is sort of based on the, you know, the Swedish gymnasium model, anyways, right? Where you, you know, you kind of you you you, you, you greenhouse like a group of players and put them in this intensive development program. Um, I wanted to finish on one other po- Canuck point. Um, you know this. We can, we've been looking forward. We talk about Demco, DiPietro. Luanga was just in town. You wrote yeah. a great piece on that. People can still check it out on our website uh, if you didn't read it. Just looking at the man's place, he seemed put off. Now, obviously, he didn't speak before the game, so he just lost a game in which he played actually pretty well. Um, but he seemed put off that anyone would suggest it was his last appearance in Vancouver. But when you look at his age and his injury issues, I think it's a fair question to ask, but it's actually – pretty remarkable with all the talk when he left about the length of and term of the contract and how much money that he is still playing and playing at a pretty high level pretty special player for the from this market well, he's gonna turn 40 yeah he's one of like he's one of three goalies in nhl as history who played a thousand games the other two are marty Brodeur and patrick wall that's not bad company he's gonna move into fourth place i think if he has any kind of final two and a half months of the season and the overall career win wins list so yeah it, it's uh he <laughs> he really is. I, I, I'm not sure if Florida miss, misses the playoffs again, if they can come back with Roberto as, as their starting goalie. Now, he says, yeah, I feel fine. I want to give this. He's not ready for it yet. I'm just looking at that market, though, and I'm just not sure if they can afford to bring him back. Maybe, God knows, the Canucks are still paying part of his salary. I think that's the case. Uh, they bring him back as a backup, but they've got to upgrade their goaltending somehow, some way next season. So, uh, you know, if we did see the last of him here, it was a pretty good swan song. Yeah, and a pretty good run that he's had. And when you look at the the players in this franchise who really stick out, he's one that does. Yeah, for it, me, he's number four. Yeah. yeah, yeah. In, in that debate, does his number get retired? Yes, I, I think it does. And again, it's, I, w- would it be the guy? I, is it automatic for me? No, but when I look at the numbers that have been retired, then, then yeah, he belongs there. It's funny. We're just sitting here talking and yeah, one of my first big assignments at this newspaper was the World Junior in Winnipeg over 98-99. And Roberto Luongo put a really average Team Canada on his back and got him to overtime in the gold medal game before Artem Chubarov scored the golden goal for Russia. So that's how long we've been watching Roberto Luongo. Absolutely. Great way to tie it all together, Ed. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, we're going to do a couple of these a week, plus check out our video products at our website, Uh, You can check them all out at The White Towel. Um, You can find us on iTunes, subscribe, rate us through Apple Podcasts. Thanks very much for listening. We'll be back later in the week with another episode.